A good morning. Thank you for coming, even if you did know I was teaching. Um, <laughs> Stop it. That's special. Especially. Oh, man. Yeah, it's special. Um, let's, uh, let's bow for some prayer before we get into this morning. Lord, we come to your presence in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because it is his blood and his life that make it possible for us to even ask for your help. We thank you for the mercy and the grace that are ours in him. And I pray that you would, first of all, give me clarity of thought as I try to express um, what I believe you would have taught this morning, give my brothers, my dear brothers and sisters here, clarity of thought as they hear, that they might, uh, as the Bereans, search the scriptures to see whether these things are so. Speak to us, Lord. Teach us. And it is in as I said, the name of our precious Savior, Jesus Christ, that I pray. Amen. All right, I want to begin this morning uh, with a brief, hopefully brief, summary of some of what we've seen in recent weeks and perhaps say some new things about those passages just as, as I'm going along to kind of lets you see what leads me up to the things that I'm going to say about uh, our passage that we're, that we're studying today. Chapter 12 of Hebrews uh, began, began with an exhortation to lay aside two things, every weight and sin. He roots this exhortation in what has been taught in chapter 11. That's why he starts it with, wherefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin. So uh, the, the roots, the anchor for what he's about to argue there comes out of chapter 11. Now, much ink has been spilled over what the author is thinking of as weight and what each individual's besetting sin might be. But I would suggest if, and I know it's come up earlier here as we covered this passage, that the weights are things that are external to the individual and that sin is not lying, cheating, and stealing or whatever other, yes, or murder or whatever other individual sin you may name. Sins, the bad things we do, are the fruit of the root of wickedness that lies at the heart of everything that the flesh desires to do, even if what it desires to do looks virtuous on the outside. Uh, I try to explain it kind of like this to people. Uh, there are people who go out on cold winter nights and distribute blankets to the homeless. Now, Everyone tends to look at that and go, oh, 
What a, ver- what a righteous, what a good deed this person is doing. It's, it's righteous, it's good, God is smiling upon them. But think about the fact that there are three motives that may have driven that. Three main motives. One is that this person worships mankind and can't stand the thought of a human with the the divine spark that is in them being uncomfortable, suffering. Does God smile on that? I would say no, it's idolatry. Second motive. Self, reputation. Maybe they're hungry to hear people say, wow, what a good deed you've done. My, what a good little boy you are. Is God smiling? No. It's idolatry. You just change the deity from one outside yourself to yourself. Or the third major motive is that this person sees those people as humans made in the image of God and wants to do his part or her part to demonstrate, as we were talking about last week, broaden the borders of the Garden of Eden by placing a little pocket of it right there where God can be glorified. By, by what he has done. Ah, there we see God pleased. And it's not even because he's so virtuous, because we can know that what he did was, the thought of it was planted there by the Holy Spirit. <coughs> moved, he was moved to do it by God. Otherwise, he would have had one of those other motives. So that's just a quick thing on Sin, the flesh lusts for anything but God. And um, it is sin itself that we are to lay aside. Any and all external leanings, leanings or internal leanings toward it are to be thrown off or put to death, as, as it's said in other parts of the scriptures. But just like the Apostle Paul often does, whether he offered it, authored this or not, um, <laughs> you know, I've seen more in, as we've gone through this. Uh, I was always leaning toward the maybe. maybe, but maybe not. There's, you know, good evidence on both sides. I've seen more as we've gone through it this time. You just hear, the, you just hear all of the epistles, all the letters that he wrote. Think about this. Every uh, think about Galatians, Ephesians, Romans. Like it's all over the place in Hebrews. Philippians is all over the place in Hebrews. Yeah. And there, there are elements that make it seem far more reasonable to me of a of a presupposition. I don't know that I'm totally convinced at this point, but uh, it's definitely more reasonable to me than it used to be. If I had a dissertation to write, this would be the one. Really? Yeah. Really. (laughs) but how does that make how does that make me wrong because I still don't know (laughs) anyway 
um, as Paul often does, whether he authored this book or not, the author does not leave us empty when he leads us to put off things. He replaces them with positive things. Patient running of our prescribed course is one thing we should focus on. Then in verse 2, he encourages his readers to be careful to consider Christ above all. Even though he started with the Hebrews 11 people. His real point is that the people of Hebrews 11 were all focusing on something that was coming. They had their eyes fixed on something future, something that was coming. And they believed it with all of their hearts. And they were willing to die watching for that thing that was coming. The difference between us and them is what was coming has now come. And we see its glory in the face of Jesus Christ. Um, So if we are to follow the example of the people of Hebrews 11, we must never place our focus on the people of Hebrews 11. Rather, we should focus on the same object of faith that they did. With the added clarity of New Testament truth. Beginning in verse 3, he enters into a series of four statements, not four, but four, F-O-R. A series of four statements or because statements. In some, like the one in verse 3, the word for is not translated, but it is there in in the original. These statements build a framework upon the foundation of Jesus Christ that creates a strong and steady structure. But that structure is not you or me or our lives. It is the life of the body of Christ united. I say that because the writer builds this structure in plural verbs. If he were a southerner, verse 4 would say, and I'm exaggerating it, of course, but in y'all's struggle against sin, y'all haven't yet resisted to the point of shedding y'all's blood. It's all plural. It's all plural because part of the idea is you are to struggle against my sin. And I against yours. As the body of Christ. I don't mean that. See the the trap comes. and, And boy I'm always one for saying. Let's watch out for the traps. The trap comes when somebody gets in their mind. Oh my only job is to correct your sin. No. No. We're in this together. And we are each. To to do battle against sin in the body. Whether it's in us. Or our brother. But not in that hostile, arrogant, self-righteous way. If we see our own sinfulness as we ought. Then we won't be able to approach our brother or sister. In a way that is arrogant. And and ostracizing. And you unworthy person. Because we're unworthy. So. 
You are to struggle against my sin and I against yours. So it's rooted. uh, We are, I'm sorry. Instead, we are to be rooting for one another, warning one another, encouraging one another, and yes, confronting one another in love. On my way over this morning, I was listening to Tom Askell and uh, yeah, oh well, can't come up with the other name. But uh, Tom was talking about, if I'm playing with a rattlesnake that's going to, that could easily kill me, it is not loving of you to let me play with it and say, oh, just whatever you want, you know, it's, it's okay. No, In, that's a form of hatred. By allowing that person to play with something that is deadly to them. You're willing to exchange their life for a few moments of peace between you and them. And, uh, and so we're in this battle together. We're in this battle to help each other win, the, 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 to fight the good fight. The fight of faith. Which is exactly what the entire book of Hebrews is writing about. The sin that so easily besets us is generally unbelief. In one aspect or another. Can, can you think of a sin that is rooted in belief? <laughs> no. So, anyway. Um, what are these four statements? Well, the first one, for consider him, verses 3 and 4. The emphasis is not on what we should do, consider. For, in other words, you, could, you can say the phrase, for consider him. But I don't think that's the right emphasis. Because we're always considering something. We're always thinking something when we make choices and when we act. Rather, the emphasis is on what or whom. We must consider. For consider him. Let him be what you're considering. When you're weighing your decisions and your actions. This is where we meet with that thought of Christ above all. Now why is that important? Well, to avoid making this a lesson on nothing more than a review of where we've been. Let me just encourage you to meditate on this chain of because words and seek the help of the Holy Spirit to understand them. Sometimes it takes more than one verse to make an individual point, so make sure you get the whole point. But I want to give, you, give them to you quickly, um, just to point them out to you and then encourage you to spend time on them later. First, Verses 3 and 4, because the external and internal sufferings of the human Jesus Christ was greater than anything you or I will ever face, but he won. And he guarantees the full victory in the end for everyone who belongs to him. So take heart in your struggle, my brothers and sisters. Take heart. 
That's, I mentioned it a couple weeks ago that this is something that I'm seeing in more and more places in the scriptures. Uh, Daniel 7 takes us through uh, this horrific suffering by the saints at the hands of these visionary creatures. And we could discuss what those creatures represent. But um, it talks about how it is given to them to fight against the saints and overcome them. And it says in another place in that same passage to wear out the saints. And it just repeats that idea that this is going to be way beyond anything we can imagine. Whatever this is. But it also just as many times says, but the saints of the most high God will inherit the kingdom. That's what our, we fix our eyes on the king because we know his kingdom will win. And that can give us confidence to hang on because he said we were going to go through this before we reign. As the Apostle Paul said, if we suffer with him, we shall also reign with him. Second, for the Lord disciplines or trains the ones he loves, verses 5 and 6. But also, and this is where we start drawing on things from earlier in Hebrews and even from other parts of the New Testament. Also Hebrews 5, 8. Though he were a son, yet he learned obedience by the things he suffered. That's Christ, and we're following him. Um, he did it with the Father, did this, went through this same pattern with Christ of foreknowledge before the foundation of the world, brought through suffering, and now in his glory. And he's promised the same pattern to us that we've been foreknown before the foundation of the world, that we are now in suffering, and that we will reign with him. And so in confidence, we can move ahead in our lives with the suffering, even if it is to the point of blood, and stand confident that the kingdom is not losing because we're suffering. Three, rather, I should, let me just quickly say rather, View it as God disciplining. Now, we think of discipline as punishment for doing something wrong. But discipline in its basic aspect is training in self-control. It is teaching you, as, as Paul said, the grace for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and justly in this present world. Third, because all good fathers discipline their children, but in the final sense, only their children. Verses 7 and 8. I know we have teachers that train kids and all that, but that's not what we're talking about. Your, who is ultimately responsible for the training of your child? You. Um, fourth, because God's fatherhood is so far above that of our earthly fathers. Verse 9. 
we, we saw the, we see there uh, that our parents disciplined us according to what seemed right to them at the time. And we gave them respect, even though they were imperfect. How much more <coughs> submit to the Father of Spirits when He takes us through those times? Number five, because His wisdom is so far above that of our earth, or does that, and it yields better results. His wisdom, so His fatherhood is far above, His wisdom is far above, and gets, gives better results. Number six, because it will give us strength to tackle the challenges we face in obeying. Verses 12 through 16. And seven, in verse 17, because if we don't fix our eyes on Christ, the consequences are terrible. Unspeakable. All of these reasons have to do with our relationship to God through Christ in this life. But today's passage goes beyond that to the very nature of the kingdom that he's building. It uses the nature of that kingdom as an encouragement to never give up on it. In fact, this is the last of the four statements. First, he makes a negative case. Then he makes a positive one. So let's dive in. First off, verses 18 through 21. Uh, somebody want to read that? Sure. But you have not come to what you touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the heavens bang that no... The hearers beg. Huh? The hearers beg. Oh, what did I say? Heavens. Oh. Made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given. If even a best touches the mountain beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Now that, the closest thing we have to Moses' statement, I tremble with fear, is actually in the golden calf incident. And so uh, the writer is trying to encompass both his time, the, the whole incident with Sinai, the, with the mountain itself, with the response of the people of Israel, of idolatry. Um, but look at this kingdom he's talking about. This new kingdom is not a physical kingdom as the old one was. For you have not come to something that can be touched. It may involve the physical realm, but it is not a physical king kingdom. It talks about touched and a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and tempest and sound and trumpet and voice and words. All of these things belong to our physical existence here. And they're all, in a sense, in the context in, in which we read them, terrifying things, negative things. I mean, sound in and of itself is not terrifying. Praise God for sound. But the sound he's talking about was this trumpet that grew louder and louder and louder until it was overwhelming. And 
These, this passage echoes the words of our Lord in Luke 17, 20 and 21. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. So we're not, the kingdom we have come to is not this physical thing that we can touch and go, there's the throne and there's the palace. There's the, the king in his, in his purple robes. It's not physical. Now this may have implications for our eschatology. Sorry to use that word here, Corey. You. <laughs> But that would be a discussion for another time. Um, no, he's not in the room. <laughs> anyway, this new kingdom is not unapproachable for its citizens as the old one was. Look at verses 18 to 20. Again. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. Everything that was happening there drove you back, drove you away, held you at a distance, even with the threat of death. That is the very nature of the kingdom established on the law by itself. I mean, we need the law. It, it is important to even today. But it's not the foundation of our, of our kingdom. Notice, aside from blazing fire and darkness and gloom and tempest, we have unbearable words and death. If approached. And that's, and he's just saying so far, that's not what we have approached to. That's not what we have come to. This new kingdom does not frighten its human leader as the old one did. Notice, Moses himself trembled in fear. John Owen points out that there was no forgiveness offered at Sinai. The sacrifices covered but did not deal with sin. It was the ministry of death, as the Apostle Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 3.7. The ministry of death. So, that's the kingdom we haven't come to. Let's look now at the kingdom we have come to. Verses 22 to 24, would someone read those? But you have come to Mount Zion and To the general assembly in charge of the firstborn, who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, for the spirits of just men made perfect. To Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that All right. This new kingdom is heavenly. The heavenly Jerusalem. Notice this mountain is contrasted with the one that can be touched. 
So when he's talking about Mount Zion, he's not talking about the one over there in Israel. This is a different Mount Zion. I want you to listen to Micah chapter 4 verses 1 and 2. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and it shall be lifted up above the hills and peoples shall flow to it and many nations shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. That's the kingdom we've come to. But it's it's not mountains that can be touched. It is the heavenly Jerusalem, Think for a moment at Galatians 4, 24 to 26. Paul says, now this may be interpreted, this passage, this thing that he just said, may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. There's the Mount Zion that is the highest of the mountains. It is the Jerusalem above. John Owen makes this city to be what is often called the church militant, meaning those who are saved but still struggling with the war against sin here on earth. Next, this new kingdom is ready for worship. Verse 22, the second half, where it says, to innumerable angels in festal gathering. That's a term that's used of of gathering together for worship. And what was commanded in the first chapter of Hebrews in his argument that Christ was superior to the angels He said, to which of the angels has he said at any time, let all the angels worship him. Here we see them gathered together for worship, but they're not alone. It also includes the assembly, and that's the same word as is translated church, of the firstborn ones. In verse 23, so they're gathered with us to worship. So instead of, as in chapter one, as chapter one implied, that the people were focused on angels and almost worshiping angels, those angels are humbly gathered with us to worship Christ, as we'll see. Notice that phrase, enrolled in heaven. It takes, it, it carries the idea of a permanent record, like the official court documents, so court records of a census or something like that. 
this is the record of the firstborn ones. Owen takes this to be all of God's elect ones, and I, I would agree with that. Our author has referred to Christ as the firstborn in chapter 1, verse 6, and also to the firstborn in Egypt that were protected by God through the Passover. These are foreshadowing the saints, or Christ is not foreshadowing the saints, but the the saving of the firstborn in Egypt is a foreshadowing of the saints in the world, experiencing trials and dangers, but who through Christ's death are saved from destruction in the midst of it all. I think it's really important to see that the connection here of the assembly of the firstborn are the same ones who are disciplined uh, by the Lord, who are called the sons and daughters of the one most high, and we are of one body, the same body who has been saved. So back to your whole intro, right? The, 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 in your, your struggle, in y'all's struggle against sin, y'all have not resisted to the point of shedding y'all's blood. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. So if we're not seeing this as, as a full assembly thing, a full church struggle against sin, then you're going to miss the point. The whole point is we've been saved to a body that is now fighting against, warring against sin within us. And that warring against sin looks like freedom from that power. Does that make sense? And so we are accountable for one another. It's not just when we hold each other, we talk about accountability structures and accountability partners. Accountability partners are great, but the whole church is an accountability partner for itself. Uh, so that we might all reach the end of the race. If that makes sense. If you don't see this y'all aspect all over 12, you're going to see this as a bunch of law. As a bunch of like saving myself from these things. Does that make sense? And you can be really easily in that, that camp. But you, you all, us, the church, are in a struggle together from free, for freeing ourselves from the bondages of sin. Does that make sense? Everybody? Yep. Yeah. Without it, you're, you are helpless, just like and the one who wants to hear no further message spoken to them because it feels like more of all. They're outside of the body in that case. So. All right, let me uh, do something. Let me do something here. Uh, I appreciate everything you've said. It's excellent, excellent. Uh, but I had one person that I was talking to about listening to the tapes afterwards, and they said the one struggle they had was they couldn't hear what the commenters were saying. And sometimes it was hard to get back into the flow because they didn't understand what how the commenter had impacted the direction. So I want to try summarize, summarize for the sake of the recording. Uh, but that was a lot. Um, <laughs> but let quickly quickly okay. yes. I can do, I can do it quickly. Okay. Um, to be one in Christ, to be one in Christ, the assembly of saints are in the struggle against sin. Against sin in the world, against sin in the church, and about making one another finish the race. So it's connected, everything in 18 through 24 is connected together. We can't separate those two things. And you can't struggle on your own. You need the whole body. And that's, that connects us back to what I talked about in the introduction. In y'all's struggle against sin, y'all have not resisted unto blood. 
Um, so thank you. Thank you. Thank you for that. Um, I also think, though, the, uh, in John chapter 4, the dialogue that Jesus had with the Samaritan woman, you know, the aspect of worshiping, you know, she said, we worship on this mountain. You say we have to go into Jerusalem. Okay. But then he says, basically, later on, he says that, uh, that we need to be uh, worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And that's where we're at today. Thank you. Um, for once again, to summarize, um, he's, he's pointing out, our brother's pointing out that uh, Jesus in his dialogue with the woman at the well in John 4, uh, she wants to make a point of where they're worshiping. We worship on this mountain over here. Where do you say we should worship? Of course, she's anticipating he's going to say Jerusalem. And he said... Um, more of the context that you quoted from. Jesus said the time is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship. For God longs for or looks for those who worship him in spirit and in truth. Um, that's also pointing to the fact that, that that mountain that he's talking about where worship, acceptable worship is really going to take place is not the mountain of Jerusalem. And he, he, and he pointed out that is where we find ourselves now. And if you notice, the author here is not saying, for you are not going to come. It's not something far in the future that we're looking for. He says, you have not come. And you have come to this mountain. We are there. Hmm, you mean this is heaven? No. No. The kingdom has this, this already but not yet going on. The saints victorious in heaven have laid down their, their weapons and, and are living at peace. And the saints down below are struggling and fighting a war for righteousness sake. Um, all right, next, to try to make further progress here, we've only got a couple minutes, uh, in verse 23b, God himself is in this gathering. That would be the Father. The judge of, but notice this, the judge of all, the judge of all the earth who will always do right, as Abraham said to him, to God, he is satisfied in the company of those who are justified and made perfect, as well as in the company of those who still struggle here on earth. There is no terror here. There is fear. There is, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Yes, we need to fear the Lord in that healthy way. But there is no terror that drives us back and threatens us with death if we seek to approach God. We are welcomed in his presence because of Christ. Next, to the spirits of men made perfect. Owen says that this is the church triumphant, those whose war against sin is over. And I, I would agree. 
Their union with those on earth is achieved through the work of Christ. Ephesians 1.10 and Colossians 1.19 and 20 point that out. But there is more. The author has spoken of Christ as being made perfect. Huh? Remember, that actually comes in three places leading up to, uh, to this in Hebrews. Uh, there's Hebrews 10, 14. Can somebody look that one up? And Hebrews eleven forty. if somebody else could look that one up. Ten fourteen. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. I think I read that wrong here. Uh, I oh my eyes jumped. I'm sorry. The author has spoken of Christ being made perfect. Hebrews two ten. I gave you the wrong references. And the second person go for five nine. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons of glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. And then verse, chapter 5, verse 9. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Now, does that mean that Christ started out imperfect and achieved perfection? Please, no. <laughs> Don't say that. Um, no, he was not imperfect. But... The work he was doing had not been brought to perfection. And also his active obedience had not been completed. What what do I mean by that? Well, we are saved by the active and passive obedience of Christ. His active obedience is the fact that he perfectly fulfilled every commandment of God from the womb all the way through his life. He never violated God's law. And that perfect obedience is credited to us when we come to Christ. It is as if we had fulfilled the law. His passive obedience was accepting upon himself the wrath of Almighty God for our failures to obey, thus satisfying God's justice. That the death gets us from an infinite negative number to zero. But zero isn't good enough to be in the presence of God. You need perfect righteousness. And his, his active obedience, credited to our accounts, provides us with that. Okay, let's move on quickly. The spirits of righteous men made perfect. I already, oh, I'm in the middle of that. There's more here. The author has spoken of Christ as being made perfect. He has spoken of the law as being incapable of making anyone perfect in 7.11 and 19, in chapter 9, verse 9, and in chapter 10, verse 1. He made that statement. And it has also spoken of Christ's single sacrifice that made perfect those who are being sanctified in those three verses I was citing before when, I, when my eyes jumped. Um, so 
That's the saints. That's the part of the body of Christ that is in heaven right now. Their struggle is over. They're victorious. They're the ones of Hebrews chapter 11. Whose faith in Christ. Though they didn't know the name and all the details. But they were looking forward to Christ. And it carried them through their struggles. They're now seated up there. Glorified. Perfected. And to Jesus himself. Verse 24. The author has already spoken of Christ using this this title. um, The mediator of the new covenant. In chapters 8 verse 6 and chapter 9 verse 15. He's referred to as the mediator of the new covenant. Notice. He mediates this covenant that brings all of these together in in peace. The the saints that are already in heaven. The saints that are on earth. The innumerable company of angels. God himself and Jesus Christ the mediator. All united together to worship God. He mediates this covenant, Christ does, that brings all of us together in peace. This is why his sprinkled blood speaks better things than the blood that Abel shed in sacrifice. I had not run into this before. All of my life, I thought this passage was talking about the Abel's blood that cried out from the ground. But I read... Some of the commentaries that I consulted referred to this as the sacrifice that Abel offered that got him killed. And when they explained it, it it made sense that what the author is saying here is that sacrifice that Abel offered couldn't make him perfect. And so the blood of Christ speaks better things than the sacrifice that Abel offered. But why did he pick Abel? I mean, how many sacrifices were offered in the Old Testament? Why did he pick Abel? Not only was he the first one, he heads up the list of the chapter 11 people. He's the first one there. And so by placing Christ ahead of him, he's saying... That Jesus speaks better things to us than all of those people in chapter 11. For example, Christ being raised from the dead will never see death again, according to Romans 6.9. This speaks better things to us than, for instance, the disappearance of Enoch. By that resurrection, God demonstrated that this one, Christ fully pleased him and that his offering on our behalf was accepted. So it speaks better things than the fact that somebody didn't face death back in the Old Testament. And that pattern goes through. If you go through chapter 11, looking for how Christ's sacrifice speaks better things than whatever those men of, and women of faith accomplished, you'll find. That he outshines them all. So he's closing with the idea. 
that he opened with. Fix our eyes on him. Look to him, the author, verse 2, and the finisher, verse 24, of our faith. Fix your eyes on him, my beloved. Don't let your eyes be brought down and lowered to something inferior. Fix your eyes on him. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much. For that one who paid the price that we could not pay. And who opens the doors, opens the way that we might gather in this festal gathering in worship of the one who has come. And in worship of the one who sent him. Lord, let us not waver. I pray that there would be no one in this room who will find in the end that they have trusted in something else. But may all here join in that festal gathering and rejoice at the absence of sin and the presence of perfect righteousness. We look forward to the day of consummation. But in the meantime, give us grace that we might do battle lovingly with the sin in our own lives and in the lives of our brothers and sisters. In Jesus' name, amen.